Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. This is the very first show of 2022. I am recording this show on January 1st, 2022, so I wish you all a very happy new year, and I hope you had a great holiday season. I know I certainly did. Now, my holiday season and my travel plans did put me off the airwaves for about two weeks, but that's okay because I'm here right now, and I'm going to give you some of the latest films that I've been watching on my time off. Next week, I'm going to do a retrospective of 2021, which I actually think was, first of all, a better year than 2020. I don't think anybody can deny that. But also, I thought it was actually a better year for movies. And I will explain that more when I do my show next week. But this week, the show is going to be just catching up on films. The reason that I'm not going to do a best and worst of on this date, January 1st, is because... I just didn't have time, first of all. And secondly, there are films that have come out of the theater near me that are technically 2021 films that I have not seen yet, and I'm eager to potentially add them to my list of either best or worst of 2021. One of them is The Tragedy of Macbeth, which is directed by Joel Cohen and starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. That came out in theaters near me today. Yeah, on a Saturday, uh, January 1st. So I have a feeling that's going to be in my top 10 list. I'm not guaranteeing that it will be, but it's a movie that I don't want to miss, and I don't also want to potentially leave it off. In addition to that, I have a lot of thinking to do about what are really the best and worst films of 2021. So I'm going to wrap up my reviews of 2021 right here on this show. And the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Spider-Man No Way Home. This came out only in theaters on December 17th, 2021. And it is a direct sequel to the films Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home with the director, John Watts, returning for the third time to direct this film. It is the 27th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it is is the 8th overall Spider-Man film, but the 3rd installment of the uh, Spider-Man franchise, i.e. the only one in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I could go on forever about some of the uh, distinctions that Spider-Man No Way Home holds compared to the other Spider-Man films, but I'm not going to do that except to say that not only is Tom Holland reprising his role as Peter Parker slash Spider-Man in this film, but if you can believe it, this is his sixth time portraying Peter Parker and Spider-Man, which is more times than Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield combined. That is very impressive. But this is, of course, the third film where Tom Holland's Peter Parker is the central figure. So, in this installment of the Spider-Man Marvel Cinematic Universe franchise, Spider-Man's identity is now revealed in the Marvel Cinematic Universe thanks to the journalism, um, so-called journalism, of a J. Jonah Jameson who works for 
a site that is like InfoWars in our universe, except it is the Daily Bugle. And in the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies, J. Jonah Jameson was the Ben Bradley-like editor of the Daily Bugle in that film. But in this film, he's echoing Alex Jones quite obviously. I would say he have a, has a shred more journalistic integrity than Alex Jones. Just a shred more, but that's all I'm going to say. But either way, J. Jonah Jameson, who again, like in the Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi-directed Spider-Man films, is played by J.K. Simmons in this film, J. Jonah Jameson reveals Spider-Man's true identity and Peter Parker, as well as his friends, MJ, actually his, his friend and his love interest, MJ, who's played again in this film by Zendaya and his best friend, Ned Leeds who's played by Jacob Batalon. All three of them are getting negative exposure. And a lot of people are considering Peter Parker to be a murderer based on what happened in the last film, Spider-Man Far From Home, back in 2019 when things were a tad bit simpler than they are now. Just a tad bit. But anyway, you really have to see Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home in order not to get lost. And and in addition to that, it would help to see the other five Spider-Man movies that are not in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And the reason for that is because... Peter Parker consults Dr. Strange, who is reprised in this film by Benedict Cumberpatch for help getting people to forget his true identity in order to save himself, his friends, and potentially humanity. But when the spell goes wrong, dangerous foes from other worlds start to appear, forcing Peter to discover what it truly means to be Spider-Man. And the dangerous foes from other worlds include, first we're introduced to Dr. Otto Octavius, also known as Dr. Octopus, who's reprised in this film by Alfred Molina. Now, a lot of people who know absolutely nothing about Spider-Man No Way Home going in, but have seen Spider-Man 2 from 2004, will be wondering to themselves how Alfred Molina is able to reprise his role as Dr. Octopus from the 2004 movie, especially given Dr. Octopus's fate, which I won't give away, but judging from the fact that I told you that he has a fate, that kind of gives something away, but that's all I'm really going to say. But as it turns out, Dr. Octopus is coming from another cinematic universe, or as this movie details, another dimension, And he knows Spider-Man, but the person who is Peter Parker, uh, Dr. Octopus does not recognize. And it turns out that's the same deal with um, Max Dillon, also known as Electrode, who's played by Jamie Foxx. Norman Osborn, also known as the Green Goblin, who's played by Willem Dafoe. There's also uh, Risa Fons, who, who returns as... Dr. Kurt Connors, also known as Lizard, and there are some other villains from other cinematic universes as well. Eventually, Spider-Man has, or Tom Holland's um, character, has a falling out with Dr. Strange 
Benedict Cumberpatch's character, and that results in more characters from other Spider-Man cinematic universes coming to the Marvel Cinematic Universe in a film that will most likely satisfy a lot of fanboys out there. As for me, I I wouldn't exactly call myself a fanboy, but I am an appreciator of good movies. And this film took a lot of continuity risks to bring several characters from other Spider-Man franchises. The, The first one directed by Sam Raimi, the first trilogy, which did start to show some fumes as it, uh, as it ended. And then there was the amazing Spider-Man franchise where Andrew Garfield played Peter Parker and Spider-Man in in two films, which I honestly think it, it did begin to show some signs of wear towards the end of the film, but I did not think the amazing Spider-Man two was as bad as other people seem to remember it being. I thought it was pretty good. I also thought it really pulled a punch in terms of getting a potentially good third movie into fruition. There was going to be a promise of a Sinister Six film, but that ultimately did not happen. So I think for people who are a bit disappointed that The Amazing Spider-Man didn't run its course, I think they might actually be satisfied with this film, but apart from appeasing fanboys who might be disappointed that the Spider-Man franchise begins over and over again, I do think there is a solid story here where it could have been muddled in some subplots and some plot holes. And I do think in terms of the universe um, splitting and converging, There are some things that some people who are experts in space-time continuums might find plot holes in. As for me, I watched this film and I I thought most of it, a vast majority of it, made sense. I also thought that the principal characters were not brushed to the side in this film, especially... Tom Holland, Zendaya, and Jacob Batalon, the latter of whom actually has a stronger role in this film than he did in the other two films. I also thought that the chemistry between Tom Holland and Zendaya was stronger and more believable in this film than it was in the previous film. And that is a testament to what I think is Zendaya becoming a stronger and more credible actress in general. And I wasn't entirely convinced two years ago when I saw her in Spider-Man Far From Home, but she's convinced me now. Also, there is some um, revelation, although it's not entirely clear why she went from being Michelle in the first film and is now MJ in the next two films. But it is made clear based on the interactions between some of the characters and original actors from the other Spider-Man films, how she's not Mary Jane Watson, uh, but she still goes by MJ, and MJ stands for Michelle Jones. Although, as it turns out, her last name 
was at one point Watson, but she doesn't go by that last name anymore. So I'm not sure if they're trying to make her into Mary Jane. I don't entirely know, but the point is that I bought the relationship between Tom Holland and Zendaya a lot more in this film. It may be because, and I try not to incorporate gossip into this um, this show because this show is about movies. It's not about gossip. But Tom Holland and Zendaya are actually dating in real life. At first, that struck that took me by surprise because they had next to no chemistry in Spider-Man: Far From Home. But here, and I'm not sure if it's actually because they're dating or not. The um, acting is stronger. And putting the gossip aside, I do actually think, in my humble opinion, that Zendaya is becoming a better actress. And her character is far more sympathetic and far less jaded than she was in the previous two films, especially Spider-Man Far From Home, where her character really needed to be a lot more than just jaded and... um, sort of hipster ironic. But Spider-Man Far From Home is a film that incorporates a lot of really interesting and intriguing dimension-traveling techniques, in addition to, most importantly, being easier to follow. But on top of that, it has some amazing special effects. For example, there's one scene where Doctor Strange is trying to kill his spell so that the villains return to their original universes and meet their fate. Again, that might be spoiling something, but go along with me here. But Peter Parker has a change of conscience um, as a result of things that his Aunt May, who's played in this movie by Marissa Tomei, has uh, told him. And I think it makes sense in the grand scheme of the narrative, but there's also a great scene where Doctor Strange and Spider-Man are fighting over this box that contains the spell, and they are jumping through this Inception-like dimension, which is dizzying, but also really captivating. And for a director as young as John Watts to make these special effects as dazzling as they are, while keeping the plot of the film easy to follow, or not confusing to follow. That's really a testament to how great a director John Watts is, not to mention the team of thousands of people who put this film together. And I watched the end credits, not only for the scenes at the end, and there are two scenes at the end that are very promising and show that the cinema Marvel cinematic universe as a whole is not losing any steam, or at least not anytime soon. But I also take a look at a lot of the names, a lot of the people who don't get the same credit as Tom Holland, Zendaya, Benedict Cumberpatch, or the director like John Watts, or the writers like Chris McKenna and Eric Summers. It's amazing how many people work on this film. It's amazing how many how many people from different parts of the world, from Atlanta, Georgia, to Australia, to Ireland, to New York City, worked on this film. And it's amazing how it turned out. So Spider-Man No Way Home, I think, might have worked better as a summer film than as a Christmas film. But it, I think it works for anybody who watches it. It still shows that the 
Marvel Cinematic Universe and the narrative of Spider-Man has not lost any steam. I think Tom Holland could potentially play this role for at least three more movies, but that all depends on what his energy level is. But Spider-Man No Way Home is a knockout. I think it is a lot bigger of an improvement than um, over Spider-Man Far From Home. I think it continues with the promises of Spider-Man Homecoming, and it's a great addition to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, a lot more so than the Eternals, but if Spider-Man ever meets the Eternals, you might actually have a potentially good film on your hands. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is one of the most hotly anticipated films of 2021, and that is West Side Story, which, of course, is an adaptation of the 1957 musical. That's the year that it debuted on Broadway, and to my knowledge, it never left the stage. It might have left Broadway every now and then, but it's been on the London West End and on Summerstock for as far back as I can remember, and maybe even then some. But director Steven Spielberg is taking a huge risk remaking what a lot of people consider to be a great film. The original West Side Story from 1961 earned 11 Oscar nods and won 10 Oscars, including Best Picture. So Steven Spielberg has a tough act to follow, in addition to the fact that of all the movies that Steven Spielberg has directed in his nearly 50-year career as a director, this is his first musical. Now, Steven Spielberg has made a name for himself directing action films, sci-fi films, and gritty historical dramas. He has a good footing in those genres. There have been other genres and types of movies where Steven Spielberg has faltered a bit as a director. For instance, he directed 1941 back in 1979, starring Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, and an impressive roster of other actors and comic actors. But 1941 was a decidedly mediocre film, and Steven Spielberg was probably the wrong person to direct it. However, I think Steven Spielberg has done a lot more good as a director than he's done bad. And even then, I think probably the worst film he's directed has been Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And even though that severely disappointed several Indiana Jones fans... It wasn't a terrible movie. It just was probably his weakest effort to date. I cannot say the same thing about West Side Story. And here's something I could say about the year 2021. First of all, it was overall a great year for movies, and I'll explain that for you next week. But also, it's been an exceptionally great year for musicals. For example, In the Heights was one of the best musicals of the year, And Encanto was a delightful animated musical that the Walt Disney Company put out 
about a month ago. So West Side Story has a lot to live up to, both in terms of the musicals that preceded it this year, as well as the 1961 film that preceded it. However, there is a bit of credibility that this 2021 version of West Side Story has. For example, Rita Moreno, who is 90 years old, but you would not know that looking at her, appears in this film as Valentina, who I don't believe was actually written for the original 1957 musical, but Rita Moreno makes it her own here. For those of you who don't remember, Rita Moreno played the original Anita in the original West Side Story, and she became the first Latina to win an Academy Award for acting. She might have actually been the first Latina to win for anything, but she is certainly the first to win for acting. And she also executive produces this movie. The screenplay of West Side Story is written by Tony Kushner, and it is based on the stage play and book by Arthur Lawrence. And the music is by Leonard Bernstein, and the lyrics are by Stephen Sondheim, who really made this musical their own. But... I'll just talk about the movie uh, in and of itself. It has a lot of not quite as well-known actors. I think the exceptions are the actors who play the adults. Like, for instance, Rita Moreno plays a Puerto Rican drugstore owner named Valentina. Officer Krupke is played with more dimension in this film than the original by Brian Darcy James. The actor who played him in the original film kind of played him like a heavy, but in this film, Brian Darcy James gives him more dimension. And there's also Lieutenant Shrank, who's played by Corey Stahl, who is tough as nails, but also tries in vain to stop the violence between the Italian, Irish, and Polish American gang known as the Jets as well as the largely Puerto Rican gang known as the Sharks. And I mentioned Tony was one of the Jets, but after serving time in Juvenile Hall, he comes back to the west side of Manhattan, which is not like the west side of Manhattan today, by the way. Um, and, And I also should mention that this film could have taken place present day, but it actually takes place in 1957, which... I think would have been a good move. I, I think if it it took place present day, I think there would have been a lot of additions you'd have to make to the plot of the film. For example, everybody in the film would have to own a cell phone. And to incorporate that into the 1957 original script would have been difficult, not impossible, but I think it would have taken away from some of the essence of the original. So, Now that I mentioned some of the actors who play the adults in the film, why not tell you about the young people? So, as I mentioned, Tony is played by Ansel Elgort. And Ansel Elgort is not exactly a household name, but he is actually no stranger to being the lead in a film. His best-known film to date is where he played the titular character in Baby Driver, and he was unquestionably the least-known actor in that film, especially when acting alongside Jamie Foxx, Kevin Spacey, John Hamm, and other actors. But he's also had some other <clears throat> um, supporting acting roles as well, including in the uh, Divergent series, uh, which... I I could explain, but I haven't actually seen that film. And there is actually one newcomer in the film 
Her name is Rachel Zegler, and she plays Maria, who is Tony's love at first sight love interest, the Juliet to his Romeo. And Rachel Zegler is, first of all, of Latina descent, unlike Natalie Wood. Now, Natalie Wood came from a Russian family, so she has a bit of credibility um, in, in that respect. And the fact that people look back at West Side Story, look at Natalie Wood's role, and do not think whitewashing is a testament to Natalie Wood. But Rachel Zegler does have a leg up on Natalie Wood in the, in the sense that she is Latina, not to mention that she can act really well, which is very impressive considering that she is a, a strong female lead in a, a film directed by a legendary director. And she has a lot, she has some very big shoes to f- fill, not only with Natalie Wood, but also the other actresses who have played Maria on stage over the last several decades. But not only does Rachel Zegler act and sing very well, and not only is she a cutie, and I my sincere apologies to my girlfriend who might be listening, but Ansel Elgort and Rachel Zegler have amazing chemistry together. Very much like Romeo and Juliet of which this musical is a loose adaptation or it gets looser towards the end because Tony and Maria's fate uh, is not, is not the same as Romeo and Juliet's fate, but it's still, ends tragically nonetheless, but I won't say how, but Ansel Elgort and Rachel Zegler have believable chemistry for people who fell in love after meeting for the first time, like Romeo and Juliet, what they, the way they fall in love with one another is foolish and it is rushed, but you know, it's familiar. I, I think we've all been there at one point or another how it ended, eh, maybe not like Romeo and Juliet, but for, for a vast majority of us, but I suppose it happens. But Rachel Zegler and Ansel Elgort are really strong in this film. They sing their own songs. They are believable during the happy moments as well as the dramatic moments. And also, there are other actors in this film who play very strong supporting roles. My note, Most notably, Mike Faced, who plays Riff, who is the leader of the Jets and Tony's best friend. There's also Bernardo, who is the leader of the Puerto Rican Sharks, who's played by David Alvarez, who is also Maria's brother. And you also have Bernardo's girlfriend, as well as Maria's best friend, Anita. The role originated on screen by Rita Moreno, which is now uh, play, who is now played by Ariana DeBose. And Ariana DeBose is a dynamite actress, not to mention she is sexy as hell. But she's probably best known to filmgoers for playing the role of Alyssa Green in the star-studded musical The Prom, which was not a perfect musical from last year, but I still remember her from it. She was also in the ensemble of Hamilton, and presumably... She has had a lot of roles on on stage as well as on screen, probably even more so on stage. And it's no wonder because 
she can she's a triple threat like Jennifer Lopez. She can not only act, arguably better than Jennifer Lopez, but she can sing and she can dance and she is dynamite. I do have to say though that Ariana DeBose also has also bears a striking resemblance to another actress named Taylor Page, but they're certainly doppelgangers in a sense. But I'm going to just limit it to that. I might bring them both up, but the point is that this movie takes a different approach to some of the musical numbers. In in other words, there are fewer scenes on the rooftops of some of these uh, West Side tenement buildings than there are in the original film. But there are some very poignant moments that take place on the fire escapes. And there are musical numbers that take place on the streets that work probably as well as they do in the original musical. And I hate to compare both of these side by side. The only time that I really compare films is if A, I've seen them recently, and B, if one really suffers in comparison to another. Steven Spielberg did take a risk in directing this film, but he did a lot of things right that the original film didn't. For instance, all the sharks in the film are played by Latinx actors, and I think that was a very necessary move for 2021. You could get away with it in 1961, and that part of the 1961 film hasn't aged well, but I think that it really adds to the authenticity of this film. And not to mention, not only is the directing great, the acting, the singing, the dancing are phenomenal, as you might expect, but the set design has to be nominated for some Academy Awards if nothing else gets nominated. But I'm really rooting for West Side Story to get nominated for arguably more Academy Awards than the original. I would like to see... Ansel Elgort and Rachel Zegler get nominated for Best Actor and Best Actress in a Leading Role, respectively. I think it would be neat to see Ariana DeBose be nominated for the role of Anita for Best Supporting Actress. I don't know if that's going to happen, and certainly she had some very large shoes to fill, filling in for Rita Moreno, but considering that Rita Moreno is in this film as well, and also acts really well... Again, let's hope she doesn't die tomorrow, but if she does, this would be a great testament to her uh, Rita Moreno's repertoire as a uh, film actress in addition to her other acting on television and on screen. But there's a lot to love about West Side Story. I wish I had seen this film before I was off for the holiday break. But what matters is that I see it now, and it is a knockout. It may be one of my favorite films of the year, but it certainly holds its own in it, alongside other musical films that have come out this year, including In the Heights and Encanto.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Licorice Pizza, which is a coming-of-age comedy that is directed by Paul Thomas Anderson in his first revisiting the 1970s since his movie Inherent Vice. I think that may be the only Paul Thomas Anderson movie I haven't seen. But he most famously brought us back to the 70s with his 1997 film Boogie Nights, which I think at the time it came out, it was considered a both nostalgic film and also one that took on the hot topic of pornography. But I think after the controversy and novelty of both those topics died down, people have revisited Boogie Nights and have seen it as a solid narrative film, certainly in the realm of ensemble casts directed by the likes of Robert Altman. And Licorice Pizza is not just a throwback to the 70s. It actually is a really good coming-of-age film revolving around a very ambitious 15-year-old who's wise beyond his years, whose name is Gary Valentine, who's played in this film by Cooper Hoffman. And he's 15, and he has a love, not just a crush, a love for a girl named Alana Kane, who's played by... A first-time actress, just like Rachel Zegler, whose name is Alana Haim. This is Cooper Hoffman's very first film, and it is also Alana Haim's first film. But you wouldn't know that from looking at them act here. Alana Haim actually has had other experience acting in short films and music videos, such as, for example, the band Haim, of which she is a part but this is her feature film debut. So Cooper Hoffman, I think, has a bit of a harder job as an actor to do um, more than Alana Haim, arguably. But I think probably because we're introduced to Cooper Hoffman first. And let me just get into the plot of this film. There really isn't exactly a plot. You just see the progression of Gary Valentine and Alana Kane's relationship as Gary Valentine is jumping from job to job, even as a 15-year-old. He actually has a steady job working for a waterbed um, sales team. And he also works as a part-time actor and has had some success with that, even though he's not a household name. Alana Kane, on the other hand, is 25 years old. She's working, but she still lives with her family, um, her Orthodox uh, Jewish family, who's actually played by Alana Haim's real-life family. There's her mother and father in this film, as well as her sisters. And you can certainly see the familial resemblance Um, almost instantly as the film goes on. But the two of them are not initially in love. They kind of work their way up to that, but they sort of find in, in the San Fernando Valley where they live various jobs at which they might have some talent and they ultimately, to knock off a cliche here, They kind of find themselves and each other. But as far as the story goes, it is more of a slice-of-life film 
than it is a film with a discernible plot. In fact, Licorice Pizza reminded me less of Boogie Nights and more of films like, for example, Dazed and Confused. I thought there was actually more of a similarity to Dazed and Confused with this film um, than there was with uh, Boogie Nights, for example. Uh, Boogie Nights was more of an ensemble piece, and this film has some semblances of an ensemble cast. For example, there are well-known actors who make very brief appearances in this film, but they are credited, so they're not exactly cameos. For instance, Sean Penn plays an actor who's similar to Frank Sinatra and Steve McQueen named Jack Holden, who I don't think actually exists. Tom Waits uh, makes a welcome appearance in this film as Jack Holden's friend and right-hand man, Rex Blau. And Tom Waits has some great uh, scenes in this film as well. Also, Christine Ebersol makes an appearance in this film as an actress named Lucy Doolittle, who is not a real actress, but she bears a resemblance to Lucille Ball and Florence Henderson, kind of a combination of the two. And Christine Ebersol actually looks quite a bit like Florence Henderson, at least I always thought so, but I won't ever mistake those two for each other again, largely because Florence Henderson is no longer with us. And there's also an appearance by Bradley Cooper, who is a a fictional actor who bears a resemblance to Warren Beatty. But in this film, he is dating Barbara Streisand, but judging from his appearance and also his demeanor, he's probably dating Barbara Streisand to name drop her rather than because he actually loves her. But rest assured, he is not playing James Brolin, especially considering that James Brolin and Barbara Streisand got married 25 years after this movie takes place. And there are also some memorable appearances by John Michael Higgins, Maya Rudolph. John C. Riley makes a very, very brief blink and you'll miss him appearance as Fred Gwynn, who's dressed up as Herman Munster. And there are a number of uh, cameos like that, which you might probably expect having this take place in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles County. But you have Elena, uh, excuse me, Alana and uh, Gary as these two who are friends. And there certainly is a sexual attraction between the two of them. But you don't exactly know where the film is going, um, but you also are very happy to go along for the ride. And Paul Thomas Anderson has had films like that in recent years that kind of buck the conventional uh, storytelling. And that's fine because Paul Thomas Anderson, when he doesn't exactly have a conventional story, as his previous films, such as, for example, Phantom Thread or the film that he did with Philip Seymour Hoffman, one of his last ones, which also co-starred Joaquin Phoenix. And I'm, I'm shifting through. I can't find the name of it right now. The master. Thank you. The movie, the master. Um, 
it doesn't exactly have a plot where you know where it's going, but it does have very strong characters and also very much like Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. Licorice Pizza did not make me think for a second that I was watching members of Generation Z play young baby boomers or younger baby boomers. But <laughs> with the set design as well as every single clue you can imagine leading you to believe that this film takes place in 1973. I felt like I was watching something that was actually filmed in the seventies as opposed to something that was filmed in 2021. So licorice pizza may be one of my favorite films of the year. Next week, I might actually put it on my list of favorite films of 2021, but I have to do a lot of analysis. We'll wait and see, but there's no question that Licorice Pizza is a knockout. I think this is a film that is far more accessible than Paul Thomas Anderson's previous films like The Master or Phantom Thread, or even the, uh, what I hear, the confusing plot of Inherent Vice. I think this film is a lot more poignant, even though it is rated R. I do think that I it would be safe for teenagers to see this film a lot more so than Boogie Nights, which interestingly enough has the same rating, which is one of the things that's kind of messed up about the rating system. But I really loved the actors in this film, um, Alana Haim. And Cooper Hoffman had great chemistry, despite this movie being both of their feature film debuts. All the actors who made cameos from Sean Penn to Tom Waits, Bradley Cooper, Christine Ebersol, all did a great job in, in this film. And I think it is a, a sort of a return of some form to Paul Thomas Anderson. But the truth is I haven't seen a bad film by Paul Thomas Anderson yet. And I've seen everything of his except from, um, inherent vice. So that really says something about Paul Thomas Anderson. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Don't Look Up. This is a film that is a Netflix original that was released in select cinemas during the holiday break, but it was released worldwide on Netflix on December 24th, 2021. It is a film with a director named Adam McKay who has directed such previous efforts um, as Anchorman, Talladega Nights, and Step Brothers. But the films that he has done without Will Ferrell have been surprisingly great. They include, but are not limited to, The Other Guys. Oh, I'm sorry. The Other Guys is a Will Ferrell uh, film. But he also has directed 
The Big Short, which is a great film about a very confusing topic, and Vice, the film that should have won Christian Bale an Academy Award for Best Actor, but did not. Rami Malek won for Bohemian Rhapsody, which he was great in that film, but I did think that Christian Bale was better. But Adam McKay has a solid repertoire, not only as a a writer, but also as a director. However, I'm sorry to report that despite the all-star cast and this movie satirizing a very hot topic, Don't Look Up is a major disappointment. It is a movie that is not based on a true story, but echoes environmental and political concerns that are plaguing us today. It is about two low-level astronomers. There is a PhD candidate by the name of Kate DiBiaschi, who is attending Michigan State University and getting her PhD in astronomy. And there's also an astronomy professor at MSU named Dr. Randall Minnie, Mindy, excuse me, who's played by Leonardo DiCaprio. And both of them discover a very large comet that is making its way to Earth. They estimate it is about six miles in radius, excuse me, in diameter, which was about the same size as the meteorite that hit Earth 65 million years ago, presumably killing the dinosaurs and re-evolving the planet Earth. So basically, they found this comet, and it's turning into a meteorite, and it has six months to hit the Earth. So they, along with another doctor by the name of Teddy Oglethorpe, who is the head of the Planetary Defense Coordination Office, who's played by a lesser-known actor by the name of Rob Morgan, who still has an impressive uh, repertoire to his name, but not nearly as auspicious as Jennifer Lawrence or Leonardo DiCaprio, try to warn people, including the President of the United States, whose name is Janie Orlean, and she's played by Meryl Streep. But the high-level officials, as well as the jaded news media, dismiss their claims and try to downplay the severity of a meteorite that is headed towards Earth. So there's a lot to take in about this film. I think it's a film that could have worked and could have been a sharp satire, maybe not necessarily a funny one, but certainly one that cuts to the core of how less than serious some politicians and some news media, as well as some layman people, take the threat of climate change. Just because something catastrophic isn't happening right now doesn't mean that something catastrophic won't happen months, weeks, and maybe even days from now. And I think the movie could have been stronger if the character Dr. Randall Mindy, who's played by Leonardo DiCaprio, wasn't such a weak and underdeveloped character. And Leonardo DiCaprio has proven himself to be a great actor. After all, he won an Academy Award for The Revenant, although some people say that he should have won an Academy Award for an earlier film, like The Wolf of Wall Street. I disagree, but Leonardo DiCaprio always gives it his best. But the problem with his character here is he's very inconsistent. So at first, when he's warning the news media about 
this comet that's coming to earth, he is very serious, but then he becomes a celebrity kind of the sexiest, uh, scientist alive right now. And rather than focusing on the catastrophic events of the meteorite coming towards earth, he gets the, his new celebrity status to his head. And he also begins having an extramarital affair with a, a, a very uh, laid back um, news host who's similar to uh, Kelly Ripa. Uh, her name is Brie Eventry, Eventy, excuse me. And she's played by another Academy Award winner who has shared the screen with Leonardo DiCaprio before, Kate Blanchett, who, despite her um, repertoire as an actress, she was miscast in this film. And I think there could have been a, a lesser uh, auspicious actress who could have played this role just as well and probably more lampoonishly. Plus, uh, Kate Blanchett's character hosts a show called The Daily Rip along with another reporter named Jack Bremer who's played by Tyler Perry. And Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio's um go on to their show and they are horrified by how laid back these two reporters are as if the daily rip was the only kind of news show on TV. And we live in the 21st century here. Not only are there several other news programs who take news a lot more seriously and do not laugh people off who are screaming in, who are literally screaming into the camera that the world is going to end but there are also internet news outlets. Um, there are conservative leaning ones who probably wouldn't take these kind of scientists, um, onto their show, but probably debunk them as hoax artists. But there are also other liberal outlets. Um, for example, the young Turks, uh, who are a credible left leaning, news source, depending on whom you ask. But the point is that this movie makes it seem like a, anybody who is reporting a crisis and gets a bit of celebrity will immediately get it to their head and not worry about the, uh, ensuing climate or ensuing, uh, earth crisis that's coming up. And that's just not true. I mean, I name one scientist who's like that. Just name one. I don't think you can. You also can't name a environmental um, activist like uh, Greta Thunberg, for example, uh, Thornburg, excuse me, who has gotten a lot of worldwide media attention, but she hasn't gotten it to her head. I mean, just find a recent uh, interview uh, with her. She's still focused on the her goal and good for her. So th this movie does touch on some of the messages that get lost with people who don't believe that something catastrophic is, is going to happen and people who know that it is going to happen. And I think that was the right way to go, but this parody was completely off base. Also, having a woman play the president of the United States and being just as jaded and superficial as Donald Trump was a bad, bad idea because a woman as president who does not have to answer to a man 
would take this kind of threat seriously, regardless of their political affiliation. Are there conservative women in the media? Sure. I can name a whole bunch for you. But the difference between those women and a woman who could potentially be the president of the United States is the fact that these women who are on, uh, who are part of the media and who are on Fox News or other um, conservative-leaning news outlets, they have to answer to a man. There is a man behind the scenes who is telling them not only to spout vitriol, but also telling them to look pretty while doing it. The president of the United States does not have to answer to such a man, which is why I think it was a bad move to have a a woman play the president of the United States in this film. But I think it's one of those instances where truth is stranger than fiction, even though we're so used to the truth, because anybody who is as willfully ignorant and as blatantly uh, blatantly stupid as Donald Trump probably couldn't be portrayed on film as believably, even though we've lived through his presidency and hopefully we don't have to live through a second term. But anyway, Don't Look Up had a very promising cast as a promising director, but overall it was a dud that gets my rating of a flunk out. There are a lot of characters in this movie, and unfortunately it got bogged down by way too many subplots, way too many unnecessary characters, and some of the characters were supposed to side with, like the ones played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, who do things and say things that don't really make much sense in the grand scheme of this movie and what it's trying to accomplish. I thought Rob Morgan, who played Dr. Teddy Oglethorpe, probably had the best acting role in this film, but even he had some scripted lines in this film which were just off base. And the movie just really didn't make very much sense. Or it wasn't biting enough to be truly satirical. And there were also moments where it could have been funnier than it ultimately was. And it tried to be funny, but it ultimately wasn't. So... Don't Look Up is a failure, and if you can, don't look up this movie on Netflix. There, I said it. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.